the stronghold of the EU is not human rights. It, it, it is market integration. Uh, I, I think this has to be said clearly. Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of Pariscope. It is a great honor and pleasure to welcome Professor Sandra Lavenex to our podcast today. She is the Director of the Department of Political Science and International Relations here at the University of Geneva, as well as a board member of the GSI, where she also directs the Master in European Studies. But I suspect many of you know Professor Lavenex already from the first year introductory lectures she holds on international relations and political science for Paris students, and of course, a class on international cooperation for those who choose the concentration in politics. We are excited to discuss issues of European and international politics, especially with regards to migration, European integration, as well as global governance and rulemaking. And of course, hear her insight on academia and get some tips and inspiration for everyone that is interested in the field. But before we dive into the conversation, let me briefly summarize her very rich CV to give you an idea about the career and research of Professor Lovenix. Before holding her current positions here at the University of Geneva, she earned her PhD at the European University Institute in Florence in 1999. She then taught at the University of Bern in Lucerne, where she founded the political science department and as a visiting professor at the College of Europe, a position she still holds. Apart from her teaching and working at universities directly, she's a co-editor of the Palgrave book series, The Euro European Union in International Affairs and highly implied in various organizations and committees in the field of political science and IR, for example, by presiding the Swiss Political Science Association from 2011 to 2014. Her very broad research won several awards and is centered around international and European migration studies, differentiated EU integration, as well as democratic governance in the international realm and the regulatory power in the IR, the latter with regards to the role of the EU versus the US and emerging powers such as China and India in global economic relations. Currently, Professor Lavenex is working on two Horizon 2020 projects, the first one being EU IDEA, EU Integration and Differentiation for Effectiveness and Accountability, and the second one being the Jean Monnet Comparative Network on Refugee Externalization Policies, short CONREP, in addition, Professor Lavenex directs two projects that are part of the Migration and Mobility Nexus of the National Center of Competence in Research. The first one examining migration governance through trade mobilities and the second, more recent one, examines the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on bordering discourses regarding migration and mobility in Europe. We are very excited to cover these issues today. Professor Lavenex, thank you very much for joining us here at Bariscope and welcome. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you for the invitation and the kind introduction. So let's dive straight into the matter. Um, you started to work in academia in the 90s and thus dispose of almost 30 years of experience working on European and international politics. Looking back, what were the main issues of European and international politics that moved academia back then? And with regards to the future, what would you say are the biggest challenges facing European and international politics now, especially with regards to us in our early 20s? Yes, uh, thank you very much. I would like to start this question with, with uh, the beginning of my studies, actually, of international relations at the University of Constance in Germany. Uh, I started my studies in 1989, and one day in November, I was in the bus with some fellow students to university, 
and we heard the news and we heard uh, that the Berlin Wall was over open. It was the 9th of November. And this was like an earthquake for us because um, it was really perceived uh, as a moment when the, the world was changing. The end of the Cold War, the demise of the bipolar system, uh, the end of, of the blockades of the United Nations system, and a lot of optimism and uh, dynamism that was felt uh, both in Europe and, and I would say at the global level and in the discipline of international relations, which I started to study. We got a new professor um, at the university. His name is Thomas Risse. He's German, but he came freshly from the US. And uh, he's a social constructivist. And he told us about the power of ideas, the power of norms, the value of socialization, persuasion, communication in international relations, how autocracies become democracies, how uh, the Soviet Union opened up to Western ideas, to human rights, to liberalism. Um, he also worked on arms control and, and cooperation more generally. And um, so uh, more broadly, this, this constructivist approach to, to international relations had its heydays um, in the early 1990s. And this is how I was uh, socialized in, in my studies. Um, and we, we were quite hopeful that the United Nations and international organizations would finally be able to deliver uh, on what they had been created for, that blockades would be overcome, for example, in the Security Council. In the European Union, we had the Single European Act already in the 80s, we had the single market, full freedom of movement, the Maastricht Treaty, uh, with the move from a European community to a European Union, uh, a European citizenship, also security policy and, and uh, an engagement of the union well beyond market integration only. And then we had also Eastern enlargement, the opening up of the Eastern Bloc uh, to Western institutions, or let's say um, the integration of, of many more countries in these um, Western institutions. And uh, it, it was also a period when we thought that nation states would not disappear, but um, at least um, where we saw that there's this general willingness to cooperate, uh, to build common institutions, and that there are shared values and interests that predominate uh, international relations, also a sense of solidarity and of community. And uh, when you ask me how the world looked like back then and, and how it looked today, certainly, you know, we, we studied also problematic things back then, but today um, the context is, is more rough. Um, we live in a period where insecurity has augmented both in um, interstate relations, but also in societal relations, many people who feel um, more insecure, fears of decline, social decline, also a stronger sense of injustice um, in the world, a sense of revendication. And I think we have to look today at, at this, both in terms of challenges, but also opportunities. In terms of challenges, well, this is how, how I approach these questions also in my class uh, at the Paris International Cooperation. It, it's, it's good to consider that we are in a period of power transition, a period where at the international level we have 
transition of power, of influence, of resources, authority uh, from the Western liberal democracies to other places. Um, so our comfort zone of our Western European liberal democracies is somewhat threatened. And this is both from within and from without. We have this external threat of the emergence of other political systems who want to share influence, who wants to share wealth um, and the future. Um, this is certainly from without, but we have also challenges from within because our societies react uh, to this sense of destabilization and we see a rise of anti-democratic forces. So this is certainly um, the big challenge, the, these power transitions that destabilize our liberal democracies from without and from within. But um, there's also a chance in the common times because next to power transitions, we also have power diffusion. And power diffusion uh, refers to the diffusion of power and authority away from states and governments to other actors, uh, non-state actors, let's say civil society actors um, in, in a broad sense. And um, in this dynamic of power diffusion, every individual has a greater say in um, in governance than it used to be. We are much more aware of the international stakes. Um, we are much more implicated. We can organize through, for example, public movements or join NGOs, um, but also other organizations like enterprises, firms develop a stronger vocation to contribute uh, to, to international goods, uh, public goods. And um, also as a consumer, I would like to say, not only uh, through organizations, also through our individual life uh, as a consumer and, and therefore participant in markets, uh, we, we have a certain influence. And this is how I would um, characterize the current era in comparison to the bright 1990s when I started my academic journey. Very, very interesting insight. Thank you very much for the contextualization of that uh, period. I think it stands in a very stark contrast to, to what we see today um, when the European project as such is now under very massive pressure. Um, if we put COVID and the vaccinations to the side, the critical voices gain importance and were voiced or are voiced in different ways, but most importantly, of course, in the Brexit vote in 2016. Again, given that you're working on European politics since you started your career, did you see this development coming or are you surprised by those attitudes that prevail among a large uh, fraction of the European population? And where would you root that dissatisfaction with the EU or with the kind of governance that the EU stands for? Yes, it, it's a very interesting question, and perhaps my perspective on European integration is not the mainstream perspective among the European studies scholars. There tends to be, let's say, a more supportive attitude towards European integration generally among European studies um, scholars, people who research on it. Um, I, I would also say I, I'm not a, a critic of the European Union, but I think we have to be very um, cautious about the implications of shifting from European integration in sense of a regulatory power, um, an organization in which states share authority 
to tackle problems of interdependence, to enhance the quality of public policies, um, to, to integrate markets, to regulate markets, to have common standards for consumers, um, for environmental protection, for labor rights, and things like that, which are you know, the original purposes uh, that were associated with European unification next to uh, by, by this growing interdependence and, and integration of markets and, and regulations uh, of markets and associated rights, we would also promote peace, right? This is, this is um, the, the foundation. And what happened then in, um, especially in the early 1990s, are massive integration steps that changed the identity of the European integration project away from this regulatory authority towards a political union, um, a political union that is more implicated in political problems that are not anymore of a pure regulatory nature, but are redistributive and have redistributive implications. If you think of the uh, common currency uh, and how uh, states have to um, be cautious of their macroeconomic policies to steer this common monetary area, um, how the whole question of um, public debt uh, is, is being addressed in the European Union, uh, the negative externalities um, that affect countries, um, yes, the, the debt, the, the, the austerity programs that are then being formulated uh, to get countries out of, of this situation. Um, the, these are highly, highly sensible issues. Um, also the question of how much other countries help uh, one country which is in difficulty through some kind of financial transfers. Um, it requires a lot of solidarity in the population. And also questions that we will be talking about later, migration and refugees. These are also policy areas that uh, touch deeply upon national sovereignty, but also the sense of identity of the population, and therefore much more prone to conflict in society and hence to the politicization of European authority. And personally, I find this um, ambition of the European Union to move into such policy areas maybe a step too far too soon because we don't have the public sphere, we don't have the European um, citizens, the, the demos, right? We don't have a European demos with also not only its common discourses and, and shared uh, communication channels uh, and, and will formation, we also don't have meso-level institutions. We don't have like political parties at the, you know, at the European level that would aggregate the voices of citizens um, in contrast, our political parties are still national, and although there's the vote to the European Parliament, um, every European citizen has the right to vote for the members of the European Parliament, uh, the political parties are still uh, anchored in national political systems. So there's, there's this gap between the ambition of the European Union and its um, democratic basis, and uh, this is problematic, I would say. Adds to this, of course, uh, the um, fact that countries have joined the European Union, which um, 
have not a long history of, of independence were dominated uh, in the Soviet sphere uh, after World War II uh, and now are more sensitive towards infringements of their independence and, and sovereignty that constitutes an additional ch challenge. The UK were always a bit uh, the odd ones in the club. They were always more skeptical towards integration and, and supranationalism than the other Western member states, uh, but there are more uh, skeptical countries indeed uh, in the Eastern European area. That actually makes me think of a fundamental question. So what would you say the European Union should look like and what should be its purpose and design in order for the EU to serve its citizens in the best way possible? Yes, maybe I, I can respond to this uh, question at two levels. One level is which tasks should the European Union fulfill? What, what should be its competences? And the other level would be how should it function? Uh, what should be its institutional procedures by which it governs? And at the level of, of what the EU should do, uh, in which policy areas it should go, in, in my eyes, uh, it, it's really important to um, look at this democratic anchoring of um, public policies and to be aware that there is a distinction between more technocratic, more regulatory policies that do not have direct implications um, for the distribution of wealth among um, the citizens or also chances. So uh, policies, we, we used to think in, in international relations that international cooperation produces Pareto optimal solutions. This is now a, a specific term, but basically uh, the idea that, that one can produce um, policy solutions that are um, better for everyone uh, without um, immediately harming someone uh, so that they can be supported by everybody, even if an individual person would maybe benefit more if, if we didn't cooperate. But the, the goal is to have a solution that is, is, is uh, good uh, for, for everyone without uh, harming uh, one, one party more than without the cooperation. And if, if the EU could try to concentrate on such policies, which don't immediately have distributive or redistributive impacts, um, that would be good. And unless there is an active development of the uh, social fabric that is necessary for uh, European citizenry to endorse also unpopular political decisions, because there are always political decisions that, you know, uh, strike a balance between winners and losers. But, but there are some policy areas that are more prone to such difficulties than others. So um, certainly I think the EU would be not, not have the problems it has currently if it did not go so much into um, yeah, the, the monetary interdependence and, and the question of, of uh, public budgets. Uh, but given that we have the, the currency area, the common currency, um, there's nearly no way out of, of this pressure to react at the European level. Similarly, with, um, with the response to refugees, I'm not so sure that 
the EU is, is really um, helping itself with developing an ambition in this policy field, because what we can observe is that governments tend to shift the blame to the European level for not investing into, uh, for example, the reception of refugees, uh, so that the fact of being together in the European Union facilitates uh, free riding, exactly, which, which makes it easier uh, for some to free ride and to shift the burden uh, upon others uh, or hope that, that third countries will help out. So, yes, I, I, I would say on, on this level, my, my recommendation would be to concentrate on issue areas that have a clear benefit for all and try to avoid those policy areas where we create winners and losers and, and where we have strong uh, conflicts over values because it's difficult uh, without a common European identity and a common European public sphere to um, solve conflict about values in a way that is socially accepted. Then at the level of, of the institutions, right, this is what the first level of the policy areas at the level of the institutions, I think we have to think creatively about how we can ensure and promote democracy in the European Union, because even if the EU focuses on issue areas that are not so problematic, it still needs to be democratically legitimated. And here I find approaches particularly promising that focus on the role of national level democratic institutions in holding um, European politics and policymakers accountable. Uh, so in particular, the role of national parliaments in following closely what is being done in Brussels and in, in, in European venues, because after all, the member states are implicated in, in the governance of, of the EU, very much the, the executives of the member states. And these national executives can be watched more closely by, by the members of parliament, who then create the link also to, to the citizens and enhance the, the transparency of, of these whole processes. So in, there's a notion in the literature for, for this approach to, to democracy. It's, it's called democracy, demos in the plural, democracy. The idea that the demos is still predominantly national because we don't have this European public sphere, we don't have this European identity, we don't have European parties. So the, the demos is still primarily constituted at the national level, and therefore we have multiple demoi in, in Europe, not one European demos. And this national demoi through their institutions at the national level shall be str more strongly implicated. Thank you very much for this personal insight. I always find it interesting not to just only point out what's going wrong, but to also indicate some uh, options that can be done to, to make things better with regards to the future. Now we have mainly examined the European stage, but I think the EU can be seen as a, a model for what cooperation can achieve and to what great extent cooperation is actually necessary to, to tackle problems. If we turn to the world stage, I think this need for cooperation stands in a contrast with the increasingly self-oriented and hostile discourse that we can observe from great and emerging powers as well. So. Maybe looking at the EU or cooperation in general, what do you think are promising options to, to get that kind of cooperation that is needed, I would say, to tackle global issues? And how can international cooperation be designed to accommodate changes in power and diffusion in power? So what is your general take on that? And also, 
the that kind of contradiction between more hostility and the bigger need for cooperation at the same time. I think it's important to look at international relations at multiple levels. We have the intergovernmental level that is between governments. And that is very political because here um, states um, interact in terms of representing their national interest and uh, political conflict in one area immediately feeds into the behavior of, of states uh, representatives in another issue area. So for example, if um, the Trump administration introduces new taxes on steel products, from China, China will uh, react in a conflictual manner um, in, in the WTO and, 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 and in commercial relations, but it will also react in, in a you know, uh, negative manner in other um, institutions where they meet on, on, on the Americans. So um, in the political arenas, in the intergovernmental arenas, a political conflict in, in one issue area has direct implications on the behavior um, of, of state actors in other institutional venues or, or much more. Now at this technocratic level of um, cooperation, regulatory cooperation in um, issue areas that is less targeted at you know, um, negotiating a big international treaty uh, and having um, new international binding norms, but it's more about exchanging practices, about coordination of national policies, and not so much about harmonization. It's not so much about common rule making. It's more about um, setting standards, but you know, also more with less legalization. It's more voluntary, um, and it's it's less far-reaching, and um, more targeted at, at concrete. Um, issues like food safety standards, for example, or vaccines. Look at vaccines. Um, uh, we, we have had quite quite a lot of cooperation uh, among um, pharmaceutical experts uh, and, and regulators and the industry, although at the same time we have a lot of competition also on the markets and we have had contestation in the World Health Organization between uh, the administration, Trump, and, and the, uh, the Chinese government, because uh, President Trump was saying that WHO, the World Health Organization, was being too, too kind uh, to, to the Chinese government. So um, I think it's, it's um, for now, we, we have these different levels that play, uh, not, are not synchronized. We, we have contestation at the political, intergovernmental, diplomatic level, but we have much more cooperation at the more technical um, administrative executive level and it, it, it is um, an interesting question how far uh, hardening of the political relations will affect also the more technical um, interaction and how long it takes to um, to trickle down how, how resilient these um, more technocratic networks of, of, of cooperation are and, and I, I don't know um, of, of much research that looks exactly at, at this phenomenon, but uh, I think it's important to note that there are these different levels and that um, the logics of interaction are not always the same. We should also include, coming back to this idea of, of uh, diffusion of power, right? You, you remember we talked now about the transition of power, the competition between states, but we have other actors now that play 
uh, a prominent role in, in international governance. Um, these networks of experts uh, and bureaucrats are, are one um, layer where, where power has authority has diffused. We have had delegation to, to such executive actors who, who fulfill certain purposes and, and have their own international links. Um, we have also an implication of the private sector that is much stronger. Uh, international cooperation, this is another issue area that um, uh, would would benefit from more research how far you know we, we know have more and more multinational corporations which are non-western uh, also China has has quite advanced um, in, in this regard how far do they follow this trend of positioning themselves as corporate corporate social responsible actors um, of, of uh, wanting to contribute to international objectives like protection of, of environmental standards, uh, labor rights. This is, this is another field that we should look at more closely. Okay, so we are talking a lot about rules, rulemaking in the, with regards to the European Union. In international relations, it's, it may be a bit stereotypical, but the EU is oftentimes depicted and depicts herself as a, as a normative power that is centered exactly around that rule of law, around human rights. However, during the refugee crisis, if we want to talk about migration, and especially nowadays as well, the EU and its agencies have been accused of uh, hypocrisy and illegal actions by the civil society and politicians alike. So before that backdrop, would you say that the, this label of a uh, quote-unquote normative power uh, still holds any validity? Yeah, I think there's much confusion about this term normative power. I think the EU is still a regulatory power. If we look at regulatory policies, market rules, consumer protection rules, product regulations, here the EU has a, a big international impact. But the term normative power has been coined by Ian Manners to denote uh, international influence of the European Union that would be anchored on human rights. And he also makes an argument that, the, that Europe, which is used in a, a way that is um, synonymous with the European Union in his work, right? Uh, Europe is, is for him the European Union, more or less, <laughs> he does not make a difference. Um, would also be the, the, the place where human rights um, have, were born and, and institutionalized first, so that there's this identity uh, of Europe and hence also the European Union anchored in human rights. And I think this is problematic from the start. It has never uh, really um, been fully convincing. Uh, and, and you find also quite some literature that contests this notion of normative power uh, right away, irrespective of what the EU is doing with refugees, because the European Union does not have its foundations in human rights. The Council of Europe has, right, with the European Convention of Human Rights, but it's another organization. The European Union is, is the European Economic Communities at, at the start. It's, it's um, the idea of market integration and, and, and peace promotion, but human rights were not at the center, and it's only in the 1990s that a charter of uh, human rights has been elaborated in the European Union. And now the relationship between the EU and, and the Council of Europe and the European Convention of Human Rights is still not fully clear. Um, but, but 
the stronghold of the EU is not human rights. It, it, it is market integration. Uh, I, I think this has to be said clearly. Maybe the context within which um, this notion of normative power has attracted some more attention is EU democracy promotion through conditionality, through accession conditionality to Central Eastern European countries. Um, this has been exercised quite credibly in the 1990s um, and early 2000s that in order to qualify for membership, countries had to introduce um, domestic reforms, uh, promoting democratic rule, democratic institutions and also human rights. In this context, yes, uh, the EU has had this normative power because it has supported uh, democratization in Central Eastern Europe. Um, the developments that we see today in Central Eastern Europe, uh, uh, in some member states, uh, Hungary, uh, for first and foremost, but also Poland and, and, and some regards also some other countries, uh, put also a, a question mark on, on the, this lasting normative power after condition uh, after accession conditionality once the EU doesn't have this strong leverage um, at hand. Um, how can it prevent democratic backsliding in a member state? Um, it, it, there are serious limits here on, on what instruments the EU can put in place because in order to impose sanctions, it needs uh, other member states to, to consent. And, and um, we see that there are some coalitions uh, across countries that protect each other and hence um, the sanctions cannot really be imposed. Uh, and, and more generally, yeah, there's a caution here to become more influential because it would mean losing the support of, of these new member states. And now the, 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 the migration and refugee question is, is another area where certainly EU policy is not primarily anchored in a human rights approach. Uh, this has to be said very clearly. And I've been studying integration in this field from the start. Um, the, the impetus to have common rules on migration and asylum was the decision to abolish uh, border controls at the internal borders of the EU, was the Schengen Agreement. Uh, the first Schengen Agreement was in 1985, and the second uh, Schengen Agreement of 1990 said that in order to preserve internal security in, in, in um, the common sphere after the abolition of internal border controls, you would need to have stronger external border controls. So in order to have this free movement, free circulation without internal border control in Europe, you need to have strong external borders because um, member states would no longer be able to discriminate irregular migrants fr from other persons without their border controls. And also because asylum seekers would be able to circulate in Europe freely um, and ask several times for asylum, which was also not um, the idea. So... From the start, the EU has had a protectionist, if you want, logic guiding this cooperation. It was not the design of a common policy to admit refugees. It was not a common policy to contribute uh, to fighting the root causes of forced displacement, or it was not the will to have an active legal immigration policy attracting labor migrants. All this was not the motivation. The motivation was to safeguard internal security uh, and 
some capacity to control migration after the abolition of internal border controls. And therefore, it, it is um, very clear that, that the normative uh, aspect came second. Uh, so in, in this Schengen Agreement of 1990, uh, in the same year, we have the Dublin Convention being adopted that then later became a regulation. I think most of the people who will listen to this know the Dublin regulation, which says that only one member states in the EU is responsible for handling an asylum claim. And, and this is normally the first country who is being entered by an asylum seeker. This rule was already decided in 1990 and only then the member states and the commission, in particular the commission, realized if we have this rule that only one member state is responsible for examining an asylum claim, then we need some harmonization of um, standards for granting asylum. We need a common definition of a refugee. We need common procedural standards for the asylum procedure. We need a common set of rights for asylum seekers and recognized refugees. We need common accommodation standards. Do they have the right to work? And, and all these questions. And it was very hard to have common rules on, on these um, more substantive parts of the asylum law. It was always difficult. Some directives have been adopted, but they are full of, of gaps and, and loopholes. And uh, it's much easier for um, the European member states to agree on common measures to deter unwanted immigration, to deter irregular migration, then to agree on, on positive rules, uh, which also have this human rights dimension for, for asylum. Also, we, have do we don't have a common policy on, on labor migrants. This is still national competence. So, so, so clearly, with your question, um, we, we don't see normative power Europe in, in, in this uh, policy area. We see rather the limits of normative action uh, on part of the European Union, because it's not anchored on, on a, a normative uh, mandate in, in, in human rights. If you read the treaty provisions for the common migration and asylum policies, you don't see a normative mandate. The mandate is still anchored in this logic of safeguarding internal security and stability after the abolition of internal border controls. It's a spillover logic for, for the EU specialists among you. We, we have the single market, we have the abolition of border controls also to facilitate traffic uh, circulation across borders, so market integration, and then a spillover to, to this migration field, which um, puts the focus on the external borders and, and the control aspects rather than the humanitarian aspects. All right. So um, one of our key motivations to start this podcast, Bariscope, was to get to know a more personal side of the professors that are teaching at the Bari. And since you are now the director of the Department for political science and international relations it's of course always um, interesting to to ask you now that you're in such a high position what initially motivated you to go into academia what drives you and what are the things you want to achieve with with your research if you would share your thoughts on that yeah uh, thanks a lot maybe i found it a bit um, astonishing that you mentioned uh, me being the director of the Department of Political Science and International Relations as a reason to reflect on the motivation to work in academia, but actually <laughs> because it, it, is, it is basically a job that we do, right? We, we, 
once once you are a full professor, but also before you, you have to take responsibilities, you have to, to help uh, out in, in the administration. And, and there are many such jobs that, that we, uh, we, we have to um, contribute to. It's, it's part of our profile, but actually it, it's not just a job. It, it is, it is um, a big, big value of academia that we are allowed to rule ourselves. We are allowed to um, regulate, to govern ourselves quite to some degree. This is academic freedom, as we call it. Um, it's not only the freedom to choose the topic you work on, to, 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 to decide on, on what you want to publish on, what you want to do research on. It is also um, the freedom to govern your uh, place of work, your institution. And this is um, the, the university as a whole, you know, universities enjoy quite um, a, a lot of um, independence from political interference. Uh, and uh, this also comes with responsibilities. We have to invest in the institutions. We have to take our freedom seriously and, uh, and therefore also pick up these more bureaucratic, one could say, uh, roles in, in the university. And of course, it, it is is an honor and a responsibility to do so. And it, it is a, a beautiful opportunity um, that we cherish very much and, and therefore invest with pleasure. And, and this links nicely to, to my own decision-making career, how, how I came there. Uh, because when I started my studies, I knew I wanted to study international relations because I have an international background. I never identified with one country or nation and spoke different languages and still <laughs> am not perfect in any language. So this has perdured. Um, and I know now today many students are like this. Many Bari students uh, have uh, even more international background. Uh, and, and this motivates you too to, to, to study this, this Bari. And, and uh, I, I would have studied the Bari as well uh, when I started off. I think it's a great <laughs> program. And it responded to, to this concern, what is a nation, what is a state, and what, yeah, how, how we see the world. Um, but um, I, I was not sure about an academic career. I was open-minded and uh, was interested in international, international organizations. Also NGOs um, came up uh, more prominently um, while, while I was advancing. But uh, actually, uh, I, I must say, I, I found my way also by ruling out alternatives. I did uh, several internships I, I did and, and, and had, had small jobs uh, with um, the European Parliament, with the UNHCR, uh, with an EU embassy, it's EU delegation, it was in Australia. Uh, at the European Commission too, um, and and um, I never really liked these jobs, so I got into them. Um, I, I spent six, seven, eight months, depending on on what what it was, and I found them too bureaucratic, um, not creative enough, uh, too much talk, too much negotiations, um, no real independence in work, no no freedom to develop your own thing, to to to, to invest into something and to follow it through, always you know reacting and. Mm, yeah, and, and, and losing a lot of time talking. <laughs> and, and I noticed this is not, not what I like to do. And in contrast, in my studies, I have the opportunity to write seminar papers um, quite, quite, quite early on. And I've, I really liked that. I never felt lost. Uh, I always uh, found topic that fascinated me and, and found it uh, 
nice and enjoyable and, and a pleasure to, to read a lot, to, to, to find my way uh, to, to a topic and, and concentrate on that so that uh, I, I felt at ease and um, got a scholarship for, for my PhD in Florence, as, as you mentioned. Uh, and, and this was also an, an excellent um, institute, uh, which is well recognized. Uh, so it was not difficult with the PhD from the European University Institute to follow a career uh, in, in university. Uh, but, but you always need luck. It's, it's not, it's not a, an easy passage because um, there are few positions and, and many good uh, young researchers so, so much on my trajectory, I think I ruled out alternatives and I really took pleasure in this kind of academic work. And it's still the case, even in the bureaucratic parts, which yeah, you wouldn't think of immediately in the first place. I also enjoy teaching, I should also say this. Um, it, it's great to be in contact with young people and also to have to articulate your thoughts and, and to, 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 to communicate your knowledge and, and what, what you want um, to people to take away from your classes. It's a challenge. It's, it's also a lot of freedom that we have here because, you know, we don't have pre-fabricated curricula. We, we create our courses ourselves. We put our own uh, emphasis and, um, and this is lifelong learning if you want for, for us as well. And, and it's definitely a wonderful job. So it sounds like you experienced yourself how broad the, the field of international relations is, and that can sometimes be stressful, but also uh, uh, present many opportunities for, for students who are now pursuing uh, the Bari or another degree in, in the field. So there are many activities available to students during their studies, like um, internships or academic performance or voluntary activities for, I don't know, NGOs, political parties, etc. So with, with your experience, what would you recommend or what would you say that students in, in international relations spend their energy best in, um, in what kind of these, these activities or maybe you have different activities that come to your mind? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's probably difficult when you are in your bachelor studies to already know what you want to do later and what you like best, what, what suits you better, and also which opportunities you will have in life. I think there's a lot of, of path dependence also that, you know, opportunities come up sometimes uh, and sometimes not. So, so you cannot control everything. I would say my recommendation is, is Try not to have a fixed plan. Be, be open. Follow follow your life. Follow you know the doors that that open up. Uh, be open to maybe go into a direction that you did not anticipate. If, for example, you hear oh there is an internship in, in an organization you weren't thinking about, or you 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 know get in contact with maybe an organization you don't like in particular, like the World Economic Forum, for example, right? Big business. And so maybe you are a left-minded uh, student. Uh, well, why not take the opportunity to look at it more closely? And so, so really keep your eyes open. Uh, don't, don't try to plan too much in advance. Take your opportunities when they come up because you will be able to, um, to process your experiences and to make sense of them, to learn of them and, and then be um, stronger when you take the next step in, in your career. 
And therefore, when you ask me uh, what students should invest in, whether more academic work or more um, internships, jobs, or um, civil engagement, it, it's difficult to say because it, when I look back at my own trajectory, you know, I, I was open-minded uh, for, for other kinds of jobs uh, when I was younger and, and maybe someone will find out this is really, you know, like an NGO, this is really something where they can uh, fully invest in and um, the academic work is something much too sedentary, isolated, long-term, um, boring, uh, and, and therefore not, not the best choice. So I think we, we, it's good to experience uh, a bit different things. For the academic venue, uh, I think it's important to try to write as many seminar papers as you can, because this is the moment when you have to be creative. You have to, you really, as you said, you confront this big, big, big field of international relations. It's, you know, uh, unlimited possibilities of topics uh, that you could look at. And, and it's really a, a big challenge to, to define your focus and, and to craft a research design uh, on, on a topic of your choice. And, and this we notice when the students uh, come at the end of their bachelor career and uh, write their PDR, the projet de recherche, it's the bachelor thesis, quite a good number of, of students have, have a difficulty to define their topic and, and uh, yes, get a hand on, on this freedom that is there and, and this lack of structuration um, the need of creativity and also to take decisions, to, to assume <laughs> a choice and, and then follow it through. Uh, if you feel at ease with that, if, if you enjoy this openness, then I think you have good academic credentials. Teaching is a, is a part of your job. As, as I said, many of the listeners probably have been to one of your classes. Um, we are very interested in to know how you observe the students of the Bari. Um, how do you think the student cohort has evolved since you first started teaching in general and the Bari here in Geneva? Have the questions you have been asked changed? Do you think the students are becoming more or less critical? Can you name any developments or observations in, in that regard? Yes, so, so um, have the students changed? Again, it's, it's a bit difficult time to answer this, perhaps, because our interaction is more limited than uh, the last years, but certainly what has changed, I've started uh, teaching in Geneva in 2014, um, the world pro problems are more imminent now than they were back then, uh, so there is a stronger sense of concern. Uh, have they become more critical, the students? I would say yes, they, they are more aware of um, the complexity of many issues, um, it's not, you know, that there was always a sense of anti-globalization and so on, but now I think it's much more um, reflexive, much more um, informed, uh, and also the necessity to, to try to invest constructively in international politics, but also local politics. I, I feel it more in, in um, the recent years how far this affects then the academic orientation of the students, whether I would say um, students have become more critical, more sensitive, more 
uh, engage with, with the topics that we treat? Is it, I would say, yes. Have they become more oriented towards career outside academia in the sense of engaging actively in politics? I, I'm not sure. I think we still have both, right? We have the activists and we have those who are more the intellectual type uh, uh, who likes to, to, to study the issues more than uh, engage with them. It's always um, it, uh, enriching to, to get an, an outside view of, of oneself as being part of the students uh, as are Leah and I. So we're already at the end or already. <laughs> we had a very, very rich um, conversation. Thank you very much. And we always ask the same last questions to all our guests. That would be, um, what are three tips you would give yourself at age 20 looking back? Yes, so, so maybe I, I might uh, repeat myself a little bit. Um, but I would say be open. Uh, don't try to plan everything. Uh, look out for doors that open up. And... Yeah, be open to look also in fields that you would not expect uh, in the first place. Perhaps the second one, uh, don't be too cautious, be brave, be courageous. Don't underestimate yourself. Don't try to play a role. Don't try to fill boxes, you know, don't, to, 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 don't try to fulfill uh, expectations that you see um, are put towards you. Try to find your own voice and, and, and stand up to it. Um, stand up to your opinion and uh, embrace challenges, embrace also uh, contradictions, because this will only help you to become clearer uh, and to be stronger in your own argumentation and your capacity to convey. That would be maybe a few recommendations for myself and for 20 years old. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. We really appreciate your time. And uh, it was a great, great pleasure to have you as our guest, uh, Professor Levenex. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks to you. It was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, uh, yeah, see you soon. Bye bye.